Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us, shown in Christ. We thank you for your word that you have given to us, that tells us of all that you have done for us, and tells us of your great love, tells us of who you are and who we are in you. Lord, we thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. And as we look at what Christ has done for us, as we look at him, we see the culmination of everything that your people waited thousands of years for. We see what he has done for us, but we see also what he is doing for us. And we thank you and we pray that in this, we will lift our eyes to you and turn our eyes upon Jesus. We pray that you will bless us with your word today. And we pray that you will shape us to be like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now our church that we gather in each and every Sunday has some things that have moved around over the years. I remember when we used to have the, the music, music over this side and the singers would stand in front of that door. And I don't know, that's, does anybody else remember that? That's going back a ways. Frog remembers that. Brian remembers that. <laughs> well, that's a big, that's a very big change, yes. Yes, I do have some vague memories of that. Once upon a time, we had the, the wooden pews that are up the back in here and the other red pews, and then, you know, now we've got the seating with all the different bunches, and lots of things have changed. But there's one thing that's, at least as long as I can remember, has always been the same in this hall and was, was the same in the old hall, and in the, that is that in the centre of the church is the pulpit, where God's word is spoken, and is the cross that is the centre of what we believe as God's people, the centre of our faith, the centre of the gospel that God has given us, and the centre of our hope is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And I'm sure that if I haven't gotten anything else across in my 10 years of sermons that I've given here, it's that everything somehow relates to the cross. <laughs> I think you, you might have noticed in so many of the passages we see how it brings us to the gospel and brings us to what Jesus has done for us. But of course the cross is not the end of the story. And one thing that a lot of evangelicals and myself included in that can sometimes be guilty of is that we leave the resurrection to be almost like a footnote to the cross. All of these things happened on the cross and then it was undone. Um, I have, uh, not this book, but a, a, a wonderful theology book by Millard Erickson on Christian theology with over a hundred pages on the cross and one and a half pages on the resurrection. And we can be a little bit like that in our focus. But the thing is, of course, the cross and the resurrection, they go together. Easter, you know, Good Friday and Easter Sunday go together. There's no gospel, there's no hope without the resurrection. As Paul says, if Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. 
The resurrection and the reign of Jesus Christ are in our statement of faith and we've been looking at the, the key things, the central parts of what it means to be a Christian, of what we believe as Christians. And the resurrection and the reign of Jesus Christ are in our statement of faith because they matter. Because this is a huge part of what the gospel is. And we read, uh, this is from the statement of faith, we believe that Jesus arose from the dead and is ascended to the right hand of the Father, a position of authority and power, along with some passages which we'll just have a brief look at. This is from uh, Matthew chapter 28. The, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, the women had come to the tomb. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. And this is from Mark uh, chapter 16, verses 19 to 20. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. The next passage given Luke 24, 50 to 51. When he had led the disciples out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And now the next one, uh, in, in the statement of faith in our thing, it says Acts 1.19, which says, Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now I was looking and puzzling over that. I think probably what was supposed to be in the statement of faith was Acts 1.9-10 not 19. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. I think there was supposed to be a little bit more on there. One moment. Here we are. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The next passage, Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. This is why it says, when Jesus ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. A picture of the ascension of Jesus and what it means. And then we've got a couple of things from Hebrews as well. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Uh, yes. Therefore we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then from a few chapters later in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus arose from the dead and he ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. That's what our statement of faith says. And that's the passages that they've put with it. And I wanted to add, oh, maybe I'll save that for later. There we go. Now today, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus, I don't want to do a, a proving the resurrection was true sermon. I, I've done those sort of sermons before. I think they have their time and their place. Uh, and certainly, if you have your doubts about Jesus rising from the dead, I'm very happy to have that conversation with you. But I take it that at least most of us in this room believe what God's word said, that Jesus rose from the dead with a new kind of body, one that could appear amidst his disciples through locked doors and yet was substantial enough that they could feel him, that he could eat and drink as he was with them. That we believe that Jesus appeared to the disciples and more than just you know, the 12 disciples, but up to 500 people, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, over a period of 40 days, that he appeared to them in Jerusalem, that he appeared to them on the road to Emmaus, that the disciples went to Galilee and saw him there and the great miracle of the fish for the second time around and, and they sat with him and, and ate fish on the beach and went up the mountain in Galilee where Matthew's gospel ends and back to Jerusalem where uh, near the Mount of Bethany, uh, near, near the Mount of Olives, near Bethany, uh, he ascended into heaven. I take it that we are those who believe these things. We believe what God's word has said. And so today I want to think about what it means for us, what difference it makes in the lives that we go out and live that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father. Starting with the resurrection, what does the resurrection mean for us? It means, first of all, that Jesus wasn't just, you know, some nice teacher who was martyred because he upset the wrong people. But Jesus is vindicated as exactly who he claimed to be. The son of David, the son of God. That Jesus appeared in the flesh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory. It proves he was who he said he was. Second, the resurrection means for us that death is defeated, that all who believe in Jesus will rise. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 
But the most important and probably the most obvious thing that the resurrection means is that Jesus is alive. That right now, Jesus is alive. He's not some martyr who did something special and we want to follow his example you know, from, from a couple thousand years ago, although we certainly do want to follow his example, but he is more than that. Not less than that, but more than that. Jesus is alive right now and is at the right hand of the Father. And what that means is that Jesus isn't sitting up there at the great sofa in the sky watching the cricket and uh, doing nothing. But that Jesus is working right now. That Jesus is at the right hand with authority and power. Oops, apparently I didn't have that one in the slide. But as Ephesians 4.10 says, one more page. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. A picture of God, of Jesus, ascending to be all in all, to be over all of creation. Jesus is up there reigning over the world right now and that can be a difficult thing for us to make sense of, a difficult thing for us to understand in a world that doesn't look so much like everything is necessarily under God's control. As we live in a society that is going further and further from God's ways, as we live in a world filled with wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and destruction and all sorts of problems, it is true that one day the reign of Jesus will be more complete than it is now. That, As the biblical terms go, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. But he is king right now. His kingdom has begun. And he sits, well, not sits, and he rules over his kingdom. And his kingdom, of course, is his people, his people in his world, those who are under his reign, those who have chosen to follow Jesus. And his kingdom continues and endures in every generation, despite every obstacle, despite the hatred that people have for Jesus and for his kingdom, despite every spiritual opposition from Satan and all of his demons. His church endures through every generation. And more than that, all of the things that happen in the world don't happen beyond God's control, but all of the stuff, even the bad stuff, Jesus is able to use all things for the good of those who love him. He is working through all things. He is working out his plans in this world. He is reigning on the throne. Jesus lives and reigns today. And Jesus being alive today means that we can have confidence that he is working with us and he is working through us in all that we do, helping us in everything that we do for him. And we sort of saw this point uh, in Mark 16. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. 
Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Yes, you don't see, you know, people didn't see Jesus walking along on the missionary journeys with Paul. They didn't see him there with Peter uh, proclaiming the good news at Pentecost or when he went away and shared the good news in, in Samaria and with the Gentiles uh, in Caesarea. But what the Bible affirms is that Jesus was there. The Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, perhaps you're a little uncertain about this part of Mark chapter 16, since there are some old manuscripts of Mark that don't have this bit in it. But this truth doesn't hang on Mark chapter 16. Acts begins with this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the very clear implication is that everything that will follow in Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do in the world today. And of course, we can't forget the greatest statement of this in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, we can just go to the next one. The last words that he gives in Matthew's account of the gospel. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus works with us today. He is, Jesus being alive means that we have him on our side. That he is alongside us in everything that we do. What difference would it make to us if we could see Jesus there in all the things that we do? If you could see Jesus there every time you manage to have a conversation that goes beyond the mundane things with that friend that doesn't yet believe. If we could see Jesus there every time you're ridiculed or made fun of for your faith. If we could see Jesus there when we struggle to be Christ-like in an argument that we're having at home. If we could see Jesus there every time we have an opportunity to help someone in need. Every time we have an opportunity to forgive, and then it's hard. Every time we have an opportunity to serve, what if we could see Jesus there when we're stacking chairs after church? Oh, the good news, we don't actually have to stack them today because it's a public holiday tomorrow. <laughs> what if you could see Jesus there every time you took the time to read the Bible and to pray? If we could see Jesus there at every ministry that we're a part of, every time there's one in worship, every super club meeting, every uh, you know, time you're writing one of those letters for the, for the prisoners in the Crossroads Bible Institute, every management meeting, every elders meeting, everything that we're a part of, every home Bible study. Well, the truth is, of course, we can't see Jesus there at those places, not you know, in the physical sense. But the fact that Jesus is alive means we can have just as much confidence that he is there and working with us as if we could see him there. To know that he is with us, that he is helping us, and that he is using our, our meagre offerings, that 
every you know, faltering word, that every thing we do for him, although not perfect, he's using it. He's with us in it and uses it for his glory. But there's another reason that Jesus being alive today matters for us. And we see this particularly in Hebrews chapter 7, that passage I read out. Because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus stands for us today. That's the other thing he's doing in heaven. Besides looking after what's going on down here. He always lives to intercede for us. And that's not a word we use much outside the church and the Bible times. Interceding is that kind of, the idea of having an intermediary. That the HR person who comes in at work to, to mediate a dispute between you and your co-worker who keeps stealing your lunches. Or, you know, the principal coming in when you're having a, you know, a parent-teacher meeting and people aren't quite on the same page. Or you might have someone go, something go to court and there's arbitration and there's that lawyer or the judge who comes and sits down with both parties to talk about the differences between them. Jesus is that HR representative for us, that, that uh, arbiter, that one who is interceding for us. Because the Bible tells us that God has a just grievance against each and every one of us. Each and every one of us has rejected his right claim on our lives and has gone our own way. Each and every one of us has, like the prodigal son, said, we don't want you, Father, we just want your stuff. And then we might not have put it into those exact words, but that's what so much of sin amounts to. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if God were to ask us on that day, why should I allow you into heaven, into my family for all of eternity, and we didn't have Jesus there pleading our case, what would we say? Like the, uh, be like the, the lawyer from the castle. I don't have anything specific. It's the vibe. It's... God is love. Uh, there's a saying the lawyers have that uh, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. <laughs> and we see, of course, in our courts in the world today that many cases are not so much about right or wrong but about the quality of the lawyer that you can hire. But Jesus, the sinless Son of God, stands in heaven on our behalf. And every time that we fail, every time that we fall short, every time we, even though we now know God and love him and want to follow his ways, every time we get that wrong, because we will and we do, Jesus speaks for us. Yes, that sin deserves death, but it was paid for by my death. 
Now, we do need to be careful in this idea that we don't, Jesus being our, the one who intercedes for us, that we don't have a picture of God being this angry God who wants to punish us and Jesus being the one jumping in the way. God and Jesus are united in their will to save us. God loves you just entirely as much as Jesus does. But the picture that we're given is more of a God for whom, you know, justice demands that each case is heard, that he, God is thorough in making sure that justice is done. But Jesus is there pleading for us in everything that we get wrong. And I want to read out a little something for you about this passage. Uh, I was reading this book, Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And just before I started working on this sermon, I read a whole chapter about Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And I thought that seemed like it must have been God's timing. And I want to just read just a brief thing that he's written here. Even if we believed fully in the doctrine of justification, that is that Jesus has made us right with God on the cross and knew all of our sins were totally forgiven, we would not come to Christ gladly if he was an austere saviour. But his posture right now as he is in heaven, his disposition, his deepest desire is to pour his heart out on our behalf before the Father. The intercession of Christ, that's what we're talking about, him being the one who intercedes for us, is his heart connecting our heart to the Father's heart. We all tend to have some pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present, our present lives, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. But the, to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25 in, in the NIV, it says that he is able to save completely, means that God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevice of our souls, those places we are most ashamed and most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. He knows us to the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. He is able to save completely. That's what it means that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. That's what it means for us. Able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because unlike the other priests who were around for a time and then they would die and who knows whether the next priest would be a good one or not, he always lives to intercede for us. So this week, I mean, I want to encourage you to do good things this week, to read your Bible and to pray, to put a worship song on at home or in the car and sing along, to show love to someone who needs it, to be patient and forgiving when you don't want to be. To share the hope that you have in Jesus with someone that you know. To bake a cake or make a lasagna to put in the community pantry. To stack some chairs. Uh, 
But don't do any of it because you think that Jesus is only able to mostly save you. Don't do any of it because you think, Jesus has saved me except for this little bit that I need to make up for myself. Do all the good things we do, celebrating that Jesus has saved you completely. Do it knowing that when you fail, he is standing there in heaven with love for you, interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are able to save us completely. Jesus, we thank you that you stand interceding for us in heaven. And you don't have to sacrifice yourself over and over again. That was done once. It, is, it was finished on the cross. And yet you stand now at the right hand of God. And every time, every time we sin and fall short, you take that sin to the cross. You say it's dealt for, it is paid for there. And we are forgiven in you. Thank you that you are able to save completely us who come to God through you, through putting our faith in what you have done. Lord, we pray that the fact that you rose from the dead will be a joy to us, not, because, not just because it means we get to eat chocolate eggs once a year, but because it means you are alive today. You are the Son of God. You have paid the price for sins. You have given us a hope of eternal life. And right now you are working with us in everything that we do. And you are pleading our case every time we get it wrong. And because of that, we can have assurance in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.